Kira has touched on uh, a lot of the similarities in terms of the impact on youth in downturns and recessions. So we know that youth are more impacted in terms of employment and that's been the same in the COVID recession. Perhaps a different pattern as Simon mentioned because of the the way the industries have been affected by shutdowns and, and dealing with the global pandemic. But what is different for Australia in this recession has been the pre-existing high youth unemployment rate that has been persistent since the GFC. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Educational Research, or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis and today's topic is VET's role in youth unemployment recovery. Our vocational voices today are Simon Walker, Managing Director NCVER. Simon? Good morning, Steve. Joe War, Senior Research Officer, NCVR. Hello, Joe. Hi, Steve. And we also have Kira Clark, Senior Research Fellow, Brotherhood of St. Lawrence. Hello, Kira. Hi, Steve. Welcome all to the podcast. Now, the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence has put out some papers reporting on the ways COVID-19's impacted the lives, the education and career prospects of young people. One of the key findings is that people under 30 have largely put their lives on hold during the first 12 months of COVID restrictions as they adapted to social and economic changes. For some, this has meant scaling down accommodation or even moving back in with parents while drawing down on savings or superannuation. For those in secure employment, it's meant increased workloads and severe blurring of work-life balance. For those who have lost work or have been looking for work during this time, post-COVID recovery is going to be a fraught time if Australia doesn't take a well-structured pathway to recovery. And in this episode, we'll be looking at the role the vet sector can and should play in the process. But to get us underway, Kira, I'd like to start with you by having you dig just a little bit deeper into the findings, especially for that 15 to 24-year-old cohort, because they were already experiencing educational marginalisation uh, for a host of reasons. So can you fill in some of the, the detail for us of their plight? Yes, that's right, Steve. Uh, heading into the COVID pandemic, the educational marginalisation of young people was shaped by several long-term and concerning trends, I think. There's been several years of stagnation in post-school education and training participation. We've seen declining training enrolment rates amongst 15 to 19-year-olds who aren't at school. And despite some more recent increases in participation by that 20 to 24-year-old age group, there's been overall declining participation amongst the most disadvantaged young people, so those young people from the lowest socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, another dimension of the educational marginalisation already present as we headed into the pandemic was the social stratification of school completion. So despite um, several years of increasing diversification of the offerings and what's available to young people in the senior years of schooling, we've seen school completion patterns be still very strongly tied to social backgrounds and location. There's actually a, a 10% variation in school completion between those from high and low socioeconomic backgrounds. A longer-term trend that was very much shaping how young people were positioned heading into the pandemic is that over the last 30 years, we've seen much stronger employment growth in high-skilled occupations. For example, occupations that require a bachelor degree or higher 
um, accounted for 45% of total employment growth over the last 30 years compared to only 9.4% employment growth for those jobs that require a certificate one or secondary education. So because of these trends, we know that young people staying on in education and training post-school is crucial. But what we actually saw coming into the pandemic, uh, when it comes to those young people who have turned to VET, completion rates have remained quite stubbornly low, sitting at or around 50% for 15 to 19 and 20 to 24-year-olds. And there's also a concerning misalignment between young people's training participation, so the types of jobs they're training for, the types of courses they're doing, and the job opportunities and demand in their local labour markets. We actually see around one in four VET graduates employed in the occupation associated with their qualification. So where where I think these patterns of educational marginalisation really start to bite is how this positions young people in the labour market. While some young people were better placed than others heading into the pandemic, young people actually represent almost two-thirds of workers in many of those really low-skill service occupations. This meant that for young people with low skills, um, limited experience and often precariously employed, when the pandemic hit, they were already vulnerable to that economic disruption and didn't have the education and training foundation and skills to be mobile into other sectors. Kira, that's quite a bleak background for this conversation. Uh, there's one other aspect, though, and that is the dramatic shift to digital delivery of many services during COVID as well. Uh, if you just look at this cohort for a moment, has that been a, a blessing or a, a curse or, or a little bit of both? Yeah, the shift to online access to services has definitely been a mixed bag for young people. Uh, for some, I think the shift to online has enabled them to stay engaged with service providers and with education and training. Uh, speaking with a number of disadvantaged vet learners in Victoria at the height of the pandemic in July last year, it was clear that for many of them who had lost jobs and were otherwise isolated at home, their connection to training online was acting as a bit of an anchor. But for others, the shift to online created new barriers. For young people who only have access to the internet through mobile phone data, accessing materials, engaging in video-based sessions can be prohibitive. Uh, a successful shift to online delivery also requires young people to have quite a substantial set of digital skills for accessing and navigating online spaces and processes. Uh, we also see that some jurisdictions and some sectors and service providers were better prepared than others for this dramatic shift to online. So um, I think a good example is the vet sector in 2017, while across the country, um, vet delivered online made up 13% of all government funded provision. There was great variation with that accounting for 2% in Victoria compared to 33% in New South Wales. So yes, there've been some benefits from the dramatic shift to digital delivery, but it's also reinforced several existing disadvantages and created some new challenges as well. All right, let's round off the, I guess, the bleak start to this. As what Richard III said, I'm in so far in blood that sin will pluck on sin. So Simon Walker, with that, can you just paint a picture from a statistical perspective with uh, unemployment figures, uh, especially around this COVID scenario? Yeah, sure, Steve. And I will comment a little bit on the uh, online delivery and update you on some data that we've just been analysing recently. Um, so clearly the impact of COVID on... Uh, the population in general uh, was profound in terms of employment, but it did, as uh, Kira's report has shown, uh, disproportionately affect young people. 
And what is a consistent theme in all this and is somewhat idiosyncratic to the COVID-induced economic downturn is the nature of the industries and occupations that were more impacted. So clearly the accommodation, food services, hospitality and retail sectors because of their customer-facing nature were more impacted than others and then certainly in some sectors they actually grew. So it is quite uneven and quite different from a general recession like the GFC. So that's probably worth saying. Um, and of course young people are overly represented uh, as the report shows in some of those occupational areas. In terms of online delivery, we've just done some analysis on what happened in 2020 and we only have data for government funded activity uh, but it showed a dramatic rise and response, if you like, from the vet sector to move to online because it had to. Um, but I think where we need to differentiate between those people who already have a disadvantage and, and the online learning doesn't necessarily suit those people. So in the broad, uh, the assistance that needs to be provided, whether it's education or other assistance for people from a disadvantaged background, tends to have to be more personalised. Um, and I think that everyone would intuitively understand that. And so online learning w w was a fantastic response from the vet sector, d grew dramatically, but it won't suit everybody, and in particular those that need that extra assistance. Joe, I'm turning to you now because you co-authored the NCVR report that at the time that this episode goes to where will have been released publicly, it's called What Vet can offer to COVID-19 youth unemployment recovery. And that draws on data from past economic downturns and recessions. So can we start? Let's look at some of the, the similarities and the differences you found in those past experiences compared to COVID-19. Yeah, I think that uh, Kira has touched on uh, a lot of the similarities in terms of the impact on youth in downturns and recessions. So we know that youth are more impacted in terms of employment and that's been the same in the COVID recession perhaps a different pattern as Simon mentioned because of the the way the industries have been affected by shutdowns and and dealing with the global pandemic but what is different for Australia in this recession has been the pre-existing high youth unemployment rate that has been persistent since the GFC. Coming into COVID we had an existing if you might call it a pre-existing youth unemployment issue. In doing this research, I started to look at the um, VET approaches and policies that have worked to address those who are vulnerable to youth unemployment. So, Joe, that actually does give us a really interesting co context there of the pre-existing condition, if you like, with not only unemployment, but underemployment. And so if I just look more deeply into your report, there are three ways in which you've identified that the VEC sector can play a role in averting or diminishing the damage from these scenarios. I like to look at them one at a time. So the first one I'd like us to look at is the statement that uh, vocational pathways in secondary school they're going to be really important to set up these people to achieve success. Can you talk to that for us? Yeah, so vocational pathways in schools can provide uh, young people with a, a taste of different careers and open their eyes up to the possibilities. Um, often, and we, if we're talking about disadvantaged youth, they, tend, they can have very narrow views of what's possible and what's out there for them. So um, having the opportunity to do some vocational training while they're at school um, 
just gives them a, a broader sense of what's out there for them, um, raises their aspirations and um, uh, instills in them the kind of intrinsic drive to seek, seek something new. Do we know if students who have done that transition to work in a, a smoother way? Yeah, you would have remembered some of our previous podcasts, uh, Steve, where we talked about uh, vet and schools and picking up a little bit on, on what Kira said about the nature of what they're doing uh, in schools and the occupations in demand. So there probably does need to be a better alignment between the offerings in schools and what the labour market's actually requiring. So a lot of it, uh, you could argue, actually isn't very well aligned to the labour market. And there are particular programs within schools that we know have very good outcomes. So clearly apprenticeships, if, which are a very small part of uh, veteran schools, but nonetheless, they have fantastic outcomes. Similarly, for other occupational areas, um, you could get uh, a better employment outcome if you focus on the right course. So it, there is a need to make sure you've got the right programs lined up with the labour market in a crude sense. Kira actually did some work on this uh, back in 2013 in her entry to vocations research and found, um, perhaps Kira can explain more about it, but found that um, for vet in school completers, after school, they were found to often be working the similar uh, casual, low-skilled work that university students were undertaking. So it's not often, sometimes not the case that the vocational education in school experience is leading to uh, opportunities in careers where they can progress and develop their skills. We didn't see a lot of um, immediate labour market benefit from some of the, the vet in schools or vocational pathway in secondary school participation. Uh, so I think it's really interesting in the way that it's framed um, as uh, more about giving young people a chance to be exposed to the different types of job pathways that are available to get a taste, as Joe said before. Um, rather than as a direct um, ticket for entry to a specific occupation. We know that um, a lot of the, the qualifications undertaken by young people at school are still sort of towards the lower level um, of the qualification framework. So positioning it as a stepping stone to further education training post-school, I think we, have, we see a lot more success um, when it's used in that way than when it's set up as an expectation for young people and their families as a ticket directly to a job. Let's turn to the second of the three ways that were noted in this report and uh, that way that was noted for how the vet sector can play a role in post-COVID youth unemployment recovery is work-based training. Now, are we particularly talking about apprenticeships and traineeships here or is there more to it, Joe? Yeah, so apprenticeships and traineeships is one uh, type of work-based training, but it's not the only model that works. Um, so we know that trade apprenticeships in particular have really strong employment outcomes, and that's excellent. Uh, but not all occupations and not all workplaces and organisations are suited to that particular model. Uh, so things like internships, work placements and even work experience can also le lead to higher um, employment outcomes for young people. Um, one of my colleagues, Kristen Osborne, recently published a report on work-based education in VET, and uh, that report goes through all the many benefits for young people who can do a taster of, you know, uh, apply what they're learning while they're learning it. 
And that includes things like building a work history, um, building a sense of their occupational identity and um, building the skills and knowledge in context and getting an understanding of what employers expect from them and all those things, even if it doesn't lead immediately to an employment outcome, it makes them more employable as they're looking for work going forward. Actually, before I turn to you, Simon, there's something you just mentioned there about building a work history, Joe, that deals with that conundrum where young people go for a job interview with no experience and they're expected to have experience. And of course, there's no way they would have had it. But this is one way in between that. Simon? I was just going to add, uh, and it's a bit outside the youth issue, but the push for more work-integrated learning is, is bigger than just this particular issue and if you looked recently at the Australian Industry Group report that looked at a reform for the skills or, or tertiary education more broadly, they have been making a push for far more immersive in the workplace learning because they see that as the being a best model. It doesn't have to be an apprenticeship and as Joe's pointed out that could be any one of a range of different activities um, but they see that both for VET and for higher education as being probably the best way forward to provide the most the best outcome for all those uh, new recruits. Kira, what are your thoughts on this issue of work-based training in, in this uh, context? Yeah, I agree with Simon. We're seeing a lot of evidence both here and Australia of its increasing importance. Um, this is actually reminding me of some of the work that um, the European Vocational Research Centre, CETAFOP, are doing around this idea of the pluralistic trend, where we see this blurring of the boundaries between general and vocational education. And a big part of that is the increasing prominence of work-integrated learning. We're certainly seeing it in secondary education, where there's a big focus on getting young people into work placement into work experience, um, not just to um, inform the sort of decisions they make about the training or careers they might pursue after school, but also to get a sense of what it is, what is it that employers are looking for? What does it take to be employable? What are some of those foundational or transversal skills? We're also seeing work-integrated learning being increasingly impo important in university um, programs as well. And I think coming out of COVID, we're seeing um, a broad range of new models of workplace learning and work integrated learning proposed, uh, cadetships, uh, sort of adaptive stackable approaches uh, that um, the Brotherhood's using within the National Youth Employment Body. So I think this is actually quite a, an interesting time to see how employers and workplaces are being brought even more into um, the space of education and training and playing a key role in supporting that transition from training to work. Yeah, I was just going to add that one of the challenges here is is getting awareness across businesses that these models are possible and for them to have the wherewithal to be able to put something in place. There was an interesting comment in one of our previous reports talking about what they call higher apprenticeships, but, but essentially diploma-level work-based learning programs. And one of the reasons one of the businesses used the traditional apprenticeship model was because it exists and they understand it. And there was actually no other frameworks that they could rely on to be able to build a workplace culture of learning. So uh, it is a, an educative exercise as much as anything else. Yeah, definitely. And it's worth acknowledging that it's not quite as simple as just setting up work-based training for many employers and training providers. There's additional supports that are needed sometimes to support, you know, particularly people who perhaps have been persistently unemployed. They have a whole range of issues that might be contributing to that. And there's other supports around that can, you know, are needed to help 
um, those sorts of approaches work. And Kira might be able to speak a little bit more to this. I believe she's done a um, working on some evaluation of programs that target at-risk youth. Yeah, we're um, as part of the National Youth Employment Body at the moment, we've um, been undertaking an evaluation of an entry-to-work stackable skills trial in partnership with the Health Service Skills Organisation, which is one of the, the three pilots of the Department of Education, Skills and Employment. Um, and this is using um, a micro-credential, so a skill set that was approved through the emergency approval processes um, during the during the pandemic last year. Um, and as, as has been mentioned, draws together not just the, the training component and the employers, but also some of that broader wraparound support. We know that particularly for disadvantaged young people, it's not enough to just say, you know, here's some training and here's a potential employer, that the pathway needs to be structured and needs to be smoothed. And that, um, as, as Simon identified, um, definitely raises challenges around combining different buckets of resourcing to um, bring those different parts of a, a structured workplace-based um, training opportunity together. I'm also curious if anyone here has any insights on this. From an employer perspective, there is resources required to make this happen. And in this time of readjustment to the COVID interruptions, some of those resources will be under great stress and pressure. Is this just not going to happen because of absence or stress on resources and it will stay as a, an academic thought or do we see more optimism? I don't have a full answer to your question, Steve, but uh, it is a given or, or, or well understood, should I say, that larger enterprises have greater resources and greater wherewithal to be able to put a lot of these things in place. So for small businesses, which are a larger part of the, the total employment, uh, that, that's a struggle for them. I mean, they're very much concentrated on their business and to put something in that uh, they aren't used to or simply don't have large human resource departments, for example, is very, very difficult for them. I'd like to move to the third role uh, identified in this report that the VEC sector can play in aiding youth unemployment recovery in a post-pandemic world, and that's career planning. Now, I take it, Joe, this refers to more than your typical career guidance counsellor at school. I mean, they may well have changed. In my day, it was nothing more than writing down your top one, two or three preferred jobs. And because I knew I wanted to get into radio, I just put radio announcer one, uh, astronaut two, and president of the USA third, because I had no interest in the remaining two. Now that could well be the privilege of the past where there was a confidence that I was going to move forward and just walk into a role. What are we talking about with this particular uh, strategy? I think that possibly not much has changed since your experience in some cases. I think um, um, a lot of the career counselling that goes on today is delivered by school teachers who perhaps um, understandably don't have an, a great understanding of the range of different occupations that are available now. Um, and that uh, in order to deliver excellent career advice that's individualised and really um, focuses in on what the individual's interests are and what their personal um, goals are, um, we'd need to have uh, uh, career counsellors who are really experts in the workforce and understand and have a great understanding of what's possible out there and what those what are pathways into those different occupations and and not just pushing the traditional pathways 
So this is where the role is for the vet sector to be providing these humans who can bring that sort of wherewithal, that sort of knowledge uh, to, the, to the game? I'm not sure that it's the vet sector's role uh, entirely to provide that resource. Um, I don't, and I'm going to say, I don't think it's a role for school teachers either because they have enough on their plates. And I'm not actually sure where that resource could come from. That's something I don't have an answer to, but Simon, you might... Oh, look, I, I don't have an answer to it. But, you know, if we look at the other strategies that Joe identified in the report, exposure to industry, employers, work placements, that is all part of the career development experience. And so done well, and there are some excellent models in high schools of VET done very, very well. And you'll find that those things are pretty much prevalent across all the best practice schools. It's just, in a sense, just direct engagement with, with the world of work and the world of VET. What do you think, Kira, in this uh, aspect of career planning? Uh, what needs to happen? Is it possible that it might happen? Um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I think, you know, if, if we position the, the strengthening of careers education approaches um, within this COVID context, developing solutions to youth unemployment is not something that one sector or one type of service provider or practitioner can do alone. This is really an all-hands-on-deck challenge and I think it's the collaborative solutions that are needed and that are most effective. So where someone tasked with um, the careers advice or careers education role is working in collaborative partnership with training providers, with employers, with employment service providers like Transition to Work um, to actually provide not just one type of information or opportunity but that um, access to the real world of work and also an understanding of the long-term opportunities. So I think um, historically and unfortunately maybe still to this day, a lot of the focus is on a specific end goal occupation and not necessarily on creating visibility of the entry to that industry steps that are needed over the, the long term to get to a potential long-term um, career, you know, dream career, dream job. So it's about how to bring those different actors together to support not just that vertical um, career trajectory, but also some mobility horizontally within an industry when young people may change their minds or decide to shift based on a little bit of experience. So Kira, is that what you were alluding to before in anything as far as career guidance is concerned is about a holistic suite or palette of, of experiences, of skills, of mindsets that could set someone up, not for a specific job, but to be a useful resource in the economic sector uh, using this, this core grouping of, of skills. Yeah, so we certainly need to um, support young people in ways that make visible the, the first step, so that entry to work, um, what's sort of the, the way into a particular occupation and into an industry, but also make visible and support movement through um, to high-level occupations, high-level career outcomes. And I think um, just, just considering the type of resources and information that's out there, we're often focusing on one or either end, the, the end goal, the, the high-level um, occupation or sort of the low-skill entry-level occupation and not what it looks like to move vertically and horizontally between um, those points. Yeah, I was going to say just partly based on my own experience that the idea that you would focus specifically on one job and set 
everything against that goal, including the training or the education you do after school or whatever, um, probably needs to be dispelled, if that's, I think, what you're talking about. The, um, the reality is once you're in the labour market, particularly in a full-time capacity, things change, your interests change, opportunities arise, and I think people particularly young people, need to understand that those opportunities don't disappear the moment you've finished your education. In fact, arguably, they increase. So uh, not to get too fixated on a specific outcome as a 16-year-old, I think, would be a good thing. Yeah. So we've looked at vocational pathways. Uh, we've looked at work-based training and career planning as three ways in which the vet sector can help uh, with post-COVID uh, unemployment and the recovery of youth therein. Final thoughts from each of you. For people in government who might be listening in to this podcast, what would you like them to have as their takeaway? What things should they be thinking about uh, so that Australia can make some sure and steady steps in the right direction? Simon, shall I start with you? Well, I'm going to concentrate on one sector here, and that is the people who are from the disadvantaged backgrounds. And there, there needs to be a special intervention for people with either socioeconomic or demographic disadvantage. It's clear from all research that's ever been done that you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach for those that particular cohort in particular. And in the main, it has to be far more personalised than uh, it, it sometimes is. So that would be one area where I think mm. a lot of focus could go. Joe, what, what sort of message would you like people with their hands on the levers of power to take away? Well, one thing I found in doing the literature review for this uh, research, and that was an international, a review of international literature and Australian literature, was um, there was very little in the way of true evaluations of VET programs and policies, and that made it difficult to understand what actually did have an impact on youth, un- uh, youth employability after the completion of training. So one thing I'd like uh, policymakers to think about is thinking about evaluation from the outset and what are the clear goals um, and targets for programs. And another thing is to think about um, putting in place longer term solutions, piloting things and uh, in, in places, in, places um, in regions and then looking to evaluate before they expand that out and take things slowly uh, because these aren't easy solutions, they're complicated, and if you're going to coordinate all the different services that are needed for good outcomes, it does take time to pull that together. But once, and it takes time for it to get going and work. But once it does, you see really good. You tend to see really good outcomes. And Kira, we opened with you, and you've got the last say. What would you like to see? There are so many things that I think uh, you know there is a role for government to play in this. And as I said before, this really is youth unemployment post COVID is an all hands on deck challenge, and collaborative solutions are what's needed. And I think government at all levels has a role to play in being part of place based local collaborative efforts. Um, federal, state, territory and local. Um, In terms of the sorts of things that I think we'd like to see to enable this work at the government level, at sort of a federal level, it would be government adopting a a multi-system approach to addressing youth unemployment, understanding the need for training, employment services, careers to come together to help address some of the the key structural barriers. For VET specifically, um, I'd like to see 
um, training course development and accreditation um, sort of more decentralised to really reflect and represent the, the needs of local industry and local employers and being um, strongly informed by local cross-sectoral collaboration. Kira Clark from Brotherhood of St Lawrence, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Joe War, NCVR, thank you. Thank you. And Simon Walker, as always, thanks for being here. <laughs> thanks, Steve. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Education, Skills and Employment. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.